Well, we are in our study of the book of Genesis, and last week we witnessed a close-up of the pivotal event of creation, God making man and woman, Adam and Eve, and we took some time to dive a little bit into God's design for marriage, romantic relationships, and human sexuality, and if you missed that message, I encourage you to listen to it or watch it online on the website. This week we're going to be, as I said, in one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire Bible. Chapter one of Genesis was God creating everything and saying, this is good. Chapter two told us more about God creating man and woman and him saying, this is good. By the time we reach chapter four, we're reading about the first murder. And it's all because of what unfolds here in Genesis chapter three. And if you understand this chapter, you'll understand why Jesus came to the earth as a man and died on the cross and why we celebrate him rising from the dead next Sunday. If you understand this chapter, you'll understand why there's evil in the world, but also why there are things like natural disasters and diseases. And if you understand this chapter, you'll understand how those things could exist and God could still be nothing but good. In other words, this is a big one. This is a big one. For the sake of context, remember that in chapter two, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and told Adam, you can do whatever you want, you can eat whatever you want, enjoy everything, just don't eat from that one tree. And we talked about how that was necessary because God wanted to create free will for mankind. And you can't have free will unless there is an option to do something different. And by putting that tree in the garden and telling Adam not to eat of it, God gave the gift of free will to Adam. He could choose to obey God or disobey God. And God wanted man to have free will because as we've said before, love requires the choice to love. If love is forced or programmed, then it's meaningless. It's not love. And God wanted man to have a relationship with him of his own free will. God was not interested in robots or slaves. So let's take a look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. So our scene opens in the garden and the perfect paradise, and there's a serpent there. Not just a serpent, but rather, as we're told, the serpent. And just in case we're confused about who the serpent might be, Revelation chapter 12, all the way at the end of the Bible, will clear it up for us when it says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, still don't get it, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So I just shared that verse, so there's no confusion. This serpent that's in the garden is Satan. And we're gonna find that Satan is scheming to try and find a way to ruin God's creation and God's relationship with humanity. That's why he's here in the garden. He's out to destroy everything. Now why does Satan wanna do that? Was he just cast as the bad guy? Well, have you ever been pushed into a pool before? If you have, I probably know the very first thing you did, even as you were falling into the pool, you tried to spin around and grab whoever pushed you into the pool so that you could pull them in with you, right? That's what we do. If I'm going down, you're going down with me. Satan was cast out of heaven and lost his place as a glorious angel because he attempted to make himself equal with God. And he knows that his ultimate destiny is destruction. But on his way toward destruction, Satan wants to drag as many people down with him as possible. He knew he couldn't take God down with him, so he shifted to the next best thing, those that the Lord loves the most, his kids, man and woman. Because he knew that if he could ruin their relationship with God, it would grieve God greatly. You know, if you're a parent, there's no comparison between somebody hurting your bank account or somebody hurting your kids. You know, my philosophy is if you want the $27 that badly, just take it. Help yourself. But if you mess with my kids, that's a, that's a whole nother level. And not only that, but if Satan could ruin God's plan for humanity, then he would somehow also damage God's 
reputation because God's plan and design and intention for humanity would be completely ruined. And if you get into the original Hebrew and and take a look at the word that's used here in Genesis 3 for serpent, you'll find that it's a noun, but there's actually a verb that the noun is based on. And the verb is the exact same word. And the verb actually means enchantment, to be enchanted. And so the idea is that whatever this serpent was, it wasn't a snake like we know today or that you've seen in all of the classic children's Bibles. It was something that was somehow beautiful. It was captivating. It was enchanting and enticing. You know, because one of the great mysteries, if you think it's a snake, is when the snake comes up to Eve, you're like, how does she not know the snake's obviously the bad guy? Like, that should be obvious. It's always the snake. But it wasn't a snake anything like we know it. Satan was beautiful and enchanting, and the Bible says he masquerades as an angel of light because it tends to not work when he shows up, you know, in like the black suit with the pitchfork and tries to pretend that he's a good guy. So that's not how he rolls. He presents himself in a positive light. We read, and he, Satan, the serpent, said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So Satan finds Eve in a moment when Eve is alone. Adam is somewhere else at this moment. And that's not an accident because Satan tends to wait for the moment when we're alone before he shows up. The moment when we're most vulnerable to temptation. And we're going to find that despite the fact that the garden was massive and she could have been anywhere, when Eve was on her own, guess where she was hanging out? right next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just like any of us probably would have done. So write this down and we'll keep moving. Satan tends to show up when we're isolated in the place of temptation. He shows up when we're isolated and we're in the place of temptation. The lessons are kind of obvious. Don't let yourself become isolated and don't hang out in the place of temptation. This is one of the big reasons why God tells us that we need to do life together with other people, not in isolation. This is why God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. This is why Jesus sent the disciples out in pairs. This is why God tells us to prioritize being a part of the church. When we do life alone, we quickly find ourselves isolated and drawn to the place of temptation where Satan inevitably shows up. And we know the justification that Eve was using in her own mind as she hung out next to this tree. We know it because we've all used the same justification. She was there because she told herself, I can handle it. It's not going to affect me. I understand that this might be a place of temptation for some people, perhaps. Those not as mature as me, but this is fine for me. I can do it. One of the most dangerous places a believer can find themselves is the place where they begin to believe that they're somehow above temptation, somehow above falling into sin. The Apostle Paul wrote, and I put it on your outlines, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So don't ever think that you're somehow too mature or too strong for temptation. As we'll discover, the very first time a believer thought that, it literally ruined the world. (laughs) And it will ruin your world if you buy into that same lie, that you're somehow above temptation. Now Satan asks Eve the very first question recorded in the Bible, and ironically, it's a question questioning the word of God itself, as Satan twists what God told Adam. Satan asks Eve, has God indeed said You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, is that what God said? No, of course not. Satan knows that, but this is what he does. He he twists God's word in an attempt to fill your mind with doubts. This is why so often a person becomes a believer and is excited about following Jesus, but then they get bombarded by questions, maybe from friends, family, maybe even from a TV show, from an internet article, but these questions just begin to bombard them like, so can you... You not go out drinking anymore? Can you actually do anything fun anymore now that you're a believer? Did you know that the Bible is full of contradictions? It was passed down over time and corrupted over centuries. You can't trust it. Well, where in the Bible does it say that you can't have sex before marriage? It's one of the classic schemes of Satan beginning to 
flood your mind with questions and try and get you to doubt the word of God. And so what should Eve do? She should walk away. Just walk away. But she doesn't because she can handle it. She's strong enough to handle this temptation, right? As we know, wisdom is in fleeing temptation, not engaging with it. Wisdom is in fleeing temptation, not sitting down for a conversation with it. The most mature believers are avoiding temptation, not hanging out around it. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, only about that one God has said, you shall not eat it, and then underline, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And let me ask you, did God say they weren't allowed to touch it? God didn't say that. What did he say? He said they weren't allowed to eat it. Satan has already managed to get Eve to add just a little bit to what God said. And when we do that, it's called legalism. And legalism is always well-intentioned because it starts out with the intention of helping us avoid sin and tempting situations. The problem is that legalism adds to the word of God and then puts commands on other people that God never gave. Even the Pharisees, the hypocritical legalists of Jesus' day, started out as good guys. Their original intention was, let's live for God. Let's get back to doing what God says. How are we gonna do that? Let's add all these laws to help us do that. Good intentions, but we don't get to add to the word of God. We don't have that right or that authority. For example, the Bible says that we're to be mastered by nothing. That means we're not to be addicted to anything. So obviously, a gambling addiction would be sinful because we're not to have any addictions. So one day, a Christian goes to a casino and they gamble for the first time and he likes it. And so he does it again and again. And he becomes addicted and he loses all the money his family has. And, and then he repents and he says, you know, I really went wrong when I first stepped into that casino. And the church leaders say, well, this is obvious. As, as believers, we need to have a rule that Christians don't go to casinos. And everyone says, that makes sense, that makes sense. We'll just, just add that like it's the word of God. But then a short while later, someone says, you know, we wanna be as serious as possible about avoiding sin. So, so perhaps we should just avoid even, even the games they play in casinos like poker. Even when money isn't involved, it seems like that could be a slippery slope and everyone says, well, that makes sense, makes sense. And then someone says, well, you know, it's probably best to just avoid playing card games altogether because that's where Satan hooks you is, is with the playing cards. And suddenly you've got a situation where parents are being called because their kids were caught playing go fish. And you think, well, how did we get there? With very good intentions. The problem is that the more rules we add, the more burdensome it becomes to follow the Lord. And the more tempting sin actually becomes. You know, if you're walking on a path in a park, there's nothing in you that thinks, oh, maybe I'll walk on the grass instead of on the proper path. Unless, unless what? You see a sign on the grass, right? That says what? Don't walk on the grass. And then you're like, oh man, that grass, it's so green. It looks so soft. Oh man, no, oh, there's nothing I want to do. I just want to go roll on the grass now. There's something in us that wants to break the rules. And so the more rules we add, the more we actually want to break them. The reality is that we're all tempted in various ways, but we're not all the same. Some of us can go out with friends who aren't believers and, and we can love on them even as they get drunk. Others of us can't do that, we're gonna get drunk too. Legalism makes rules and puts them on everybody. Honesty says, I, I don't know what you need to do in order to follow Jesus the way the Bible says. All I know is that there are some things that I need to stay away from because I know me, and I know that there are some things that are inevitably gonna lead me to sin, and so I'm making the choice that I'm not gonna do those things because I know I can't handle it. Legalism tends to make life about keeping rules, but honesty results in living humbly before God. You see, a legalist looks at everybody else and says, man, you, sh you shouldn't even be doing that. You guys play Uno? What are you thinking? 
Do you want your kids to lose all their money and end up homeless as gambling addicts? That's what the legalist does. They look at everybody else, but the humble, honest person tends to look at themselves and say, I'm, I'm going to adjust my life in light of what I know about me. And their pursuit of righteousness keeps them humble because they're constantly aware of their own propensity for sin rather than checking out what everybody else is doing. Every believer has to honestly look at themselves and figure out what boundaries they need to create for themselves in order to live righteously for Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and he said, learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. In other words, don't add to the word of God and then become prideful about your ability to keep all these rules that you've added to the word of God. Now, it would have been wise for Eve to take the position, God said not to eat of it. I know me and I know how easily I'm tempted, so I don't even want to touch it. That's too close for comfort. In doing that, she would have been admitting her own weakness and vulnerability without adding to what God said. Unfortunately, Eve fell into legalism. She added to the word of God, which made it even more tempting and made sin even more appealing. So write this down. Instead of legalism and adding to the word of God, we should simply be honest about our own vulnerability to sin. We should simply be honest about our own vulnerability to sin. Now, this doesn't mean that we never talk to each other lovingly as believers about our own boundaries. If you have a brother or a sister who says, no, I can handle going out with my friends who aren't believers, but you know for a fact the last four times they did, they got hammered. It's loving to say, you might need to revisit your boundaries because they don't seem to be doing their job. That would be a loving thing to do. But every believer needs to evaluate themselves and be concerned with our own temptation towards sin. Verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan finds Eve isolated, vulnerable to temptation, and he begins questioning what God has said. And then Satan says, God's not telling you the truth. He's really just withholding something good from you, implying that God doesn't want Eve to have this because it would be so much fun, so enlightening. Satan says, the truth is, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be just like God. And he doesn't want that. And just like that, as he does to us, Satan paints God as a liar, defames his character by claiming God doesn't really want what's best for us, and convinces us that we'd be happier if we would just disobey God and do things our way instead of his. And Satan still does this in our lives because it still works. We fall for it all the time. Write this down. Satan seeks to convince us that if we obey God, we'll somehow be missing out. We'll somehow be missing out. All I see is everybody else who's out there in a relationship, and they look happy. And Satan puts those blinders on, and that's all he lets you see. And he says, well, yeah, it's because, you know, they didn't do things the way the Bible says. Look how happy they are. Maybe God's just trying to hold you back. Maybe you should just take the initiative and figure this out on your own. As we explained last week, God's plan for all sexual activity is that it happened in a marriage between a man and a woman. And Satan loves to say, God just made that rule because he's, he's holding you back. When you use a fishing lure, you know, you want the fish to see the bait. What you don't want the fish to see is the hook. Because then they won't take the bait, Right? And that's how Satan works. He shows you the bait. He talks up how great it is, but he doesn't let you see the hook. He doesn't let you see the consequences that are going to hit your life after you take the bait. And the tragedy is the bait isn't even real. It doesn't fill you up. It doesn't satisfy you. God says, guys, there's a hook. Don't take the bait. And Satan says, hook? What hook? There's nothing here. Just a good time. And you'll notice that Satan is never around when the pain of the hook begins to kick in. He's not around for the unplanned pregnancy. He's not around for the STD. 
He's not around for the broken heart. He's not around for the emotional issues that that relationship leaves you with when it falls apart. He's not around for any of that. He was just there to talk it up, get you to take the bite. Write this down. Don't forget, God's commandments are all designed to bless and protect us. They're all designed to bless and protect us. What a blessed day it is when a man or woman finally becomes convinced of the character of God, convinced that he's good, because when you reach that place, you'll trust his word, and it will save you from so much pain while leading you into so much life and blessing. You know, we never regret obeying God. There's nobody here who says, you know, probably one of the biggest mistakes I made is I obeyed the Lord. I obeyed the Lord and it ruined everything. But man, we all have stories about our regret of disobeying the Lord. We've all got stories. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, oh, it looks good. It was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. It looked good. And she believed it would make her wise in a way that walking with God wouldn't. In other words, she believed the wisdom the fruit would give her would be greater than the wisdom that God would give her. And anytime we disobey God, that's the lie we've chosen to believe. We've chosen to believe that there's a wisdom greater than God's wisdom. And it's usually our own. We've chosen to believe that our wisdom is greater than God's. We can come up with a better plan than him. Interesting side note, did you know that nowhere in the Bible does it identify the fruit as an apple? Nowhere in the Bible. Complete fiction. It almost definitely was not an apple, but something that doesn't even exist on our planet anymore because it was supernatural. Then we keep reading and it says, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So Eve allowed herself to be deceived by sin. Adam walked into the situation with eyes wide open And he immediately understood the seriousness of what had happened. There's a theory that Adam loved his bride, Eve, so much that he ate the fruit because he had decided that whatever Eve's fate would be, he was going to share it with her rather than go on without her. See, Adam had this great love for his bride and he was willing to join her in her plight, but, but he was powerless to save her from her situation. I put this on your outlines. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Paul tells us that Adam was a type of Jesus, a model of Jesus. There were things about Adam's life that pointed prophetically ahead to the life of Jesus. And one of them is just as The sin of Adam affected everyone who came after him. Everyone who chose to accept the work of Jesus on the cross could also be affected by what Jesus did. And just like Adam, Jesus had such a deep love for his bride, the church, that Jesus was willing to join his bride, the church, in her plight, taking on her sins. But you see, unlike Adam, Jesus actually had the power to save his bride from her situation. The best Adam could do was join his bride in death. The best Jesus could do was take his bride's place, dying her death and giving her the gift of eternal life in return. That's why in other places the Bible calls Jesus the last Adam. And we'll never know what would have happened if Adam had decided to not join Eve in that sin. If he had instead gone to the Lord and said, what do I do? I'm sure the Lord would have thought of something. We'll never know. And now we find out about the hook that was hiding under the bait. Now we find out about the consequences of rejecting the wisdom of God. Verse 7, then, underline, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So the very first thing that happens after they sin is they experience shame. They become self-conscious. And suddenly that freedom, that innocence that they enjoyed is gone. And in its place is shame and guilt and condemnation and self-consciousness. 
You see, sin always damages and, and separates people. Where Adam and Eve had previously been able to just enjoy each other, they now had issues getting in the way. So they made these coverings for themselves. And for the first time in history, a woman looked at her husband and asked, do I look fat in this? First, first time it happened right there. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And how, how amazing is this when you think about this? Because apparently this was a normal thing. Jesus, we would assume, would come down and walk with Adam and Eve, take on his physical body and, and hang out with them in the garden. Just talk with them. What would you do today? Tell me about your day. Let's talk. But this time things are different. Instead of being happy and, and running to meet God, they're ashamed. It says, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Talk about a fruitless pursuit, right? Hiding from God doesn't really work out very well. Verse nine, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? See, God knows where Adam is. He knows what Adam's done. When we sin, God comes looking for us, not to punish us, but to give us an opportunity to repent, to give us a chance to restore our relationship with him. And the Lord does that because he knows that when we sin against him, Satan is right there piling on the guilt and the shame. That's what Satan does. Before you sin, he tells you how great it's gonna be. And then after you sin, he tells you how terrible you are for doing it. It wasn't true then that God wanted nothing to do with them, and it's not true now. It never is. If your sin has separated you from God, the Lord, I guarantee it, is calling out to you, saying, come and be restored. Come and have that relationship restored. As we mentioned last week, God's design for family is that husbands lead their families, and when Eve sins, God doesn't come looking for Eve. He comes looking for Adam, and he asks Adam, where are you? God holds husbands spiritually responsible for the health of their family. And that's why he asks Adam, what, what's going on, Adam? Verse 10, so he, Adam, said, uh, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God, said, it's a fascinating line to me, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's a classic male excuse, right? I would be so righteous, Lord, if it weren't for this woman causing me problems and causing me to sin. I never had an anger issue till I got married. This woman, by the way, who you gave me, as though it's somehow God's fault. And he goes on and he says, and you know how this works, Lord. She, she takes care of the cooking. I, I just eat what she gives me and I guess today it was forbidden fruit. I, I, I don't know anything else about it. If you're an adult, I, I hope by now you're not surprised that when human beings get caught, they lie. That doesn't surprise me anymore. You know, you're very naive if, if even someone you love lies when they're caught doing something they shouldn't because that's what everybody does. We lie. And then when we're caught in the lie, we all then confess the bare amount we have to. What's the bare amount I can confess to without coming fully clean? And then we try and blame somebody else, even God, rather than take responsibility. And as people, we just see here that we've been blame shifting from the very beginning, very beginning. And from the very beginning, men have been blaming their lack of spirituality on their wives. Lord, I would be so holy if just... Why did you give her to me again? God says, because it's good for you. It's good for you. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I think Eve's a little bit more honest, even though she shifts the blame to the serpent. She, she admits, I, I fell for Satan's lies. I, I took the bait. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So because of this curse, many believe that whatever serpents were in Eden 
Back then, they had legs and feet because the loss of them seems to be implied by God's words here. And, and I would suggest that the point of this is God is not mad at Satan and just taking it out on some random animal. I, I would suggest that snakes are actually meant to be a mnemonic device. In other words, every time we see a snake, it's meant to remind us of the dangers of entertaining sin. They're meant to trigger Genesis 3 in our minds. And now we come to the proto-evangelium, one of those words which convinces you I'm qualified to be a real pastor. It's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It's a, it's a prophecy that God gives that is actually directed to Satan. Let's read it together. Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have creation, we have the garden, we have Adam and Eve, we have the first sin, we have the breaking of man's relationship with God, and we have God showing up with a plan to repair it. God says, Satan, there's gonna be war between you and the woman. This is why women don't like snakes. It was decreed by the Lord. Then he says, and between your seed and her seed. Now that's very interesting because in the context of reproduction, the idea that it could be her seed is, is actually an oxymoron because the seed in reproduction comes from the male. But this is referring to something supernatural that's gonna take place in the future and, and a certain woman is going to have a seed apart from a man being involved in the process and we will know this as the virgin birth by Mary of Jesus Christ. And we're told that this child, the supernatural offspring, will bruise the head of Satan. And if you actually look at the original language, when the word is used there, speaking about Jesus, this coming Savior, it actually means crush, is what it means. Some of your Bibles will say that. In other words, he's going to put an end to Satan. But where it says that Satan will bruise his heel, that word actually means bruises. So, in other words, this coming Savior who's going to be born of a virgin without male seed is going to destroy Satan ultimately, but not before Satan bruises, wounds this future Savior. And that's what we see happen on the cross where Jesus is beaten and laid in a grave, dying and, and lying dead for three days. And we also see aspects of this war across history as we see empires and kings and rulers and dictators try to wipe out Christians and Jews uh, off the face of the earth. So write this down. Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. The first mention of the gospel in the Bible. This whole event, man's first sin, sin entering the world, is often referred to as the fall, which is short for the fall of man. And the results of this event, some of which we're reading about now, are generally referred to under the umbrella term, the curse. When we talk about the effects of the fall or the effects of the curse, this is what we're talking about. Some of the effects of the curse we begin reading about in verse 16. To the woman he, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Incredibly, the implication here is that had we not sinned, pregnancy and childbirth would have been completely painless. I don't know what that would have looked like or how, how that would have played out. Like anything happened today? Oh, yeah, I had the kid. I had the kid. He's, he's over there. Oh, cool. That's great. Painless, no recovery, somehow, some way. And then God goes on and he says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Eve, I've made Adam to lead your family. But because of sin entering the world, you're now going to just chafe against that idea. Even that idea is just going to rub you the wrong way. You're not going to like it, and it's going to be hard for you to submit to him because secretly part of you is going to want to rule over him. And this is the beginning of the battle of the sexes. Women want the love of their husband, but something in them also wants to rule over and control their husband, which results in the husband not wanting to be loving, which creates this cycle of conflict. And the implication is that when God originally created Eve and said, you're going to be Adam's helper, it was a complete joy to Eve. There's nothing hard about it. Nothing in her that said, oh, that's so great. 
She, she was thrilled. She was excited about it. She loved it. She found it fulfilling. But now because of the fall, it would become something she didn't naturally want to do. It'll be something that she will have to have the help of Jesus on a daily basis to do. And we try and solve this battle of the sexes with books like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, or, or some sort of personality test. And we go, oh, it's so obvious. I'm a red, she's a blue. That's what's going on. That's why we have marital conflict. And whatever the system is, it's all just trying to find a band-aid for the real problem, which is, if I wrote a book on marriage, I think I'd just call it Men Are Sinners, Women Are Sinners. Probably wouldn't sell very many copies, but that's really what the problem is, and that's a good starting point. If you want to understand why you got issues in your marriage, it's simple. You're a sinner, they're a sinner. That's the problem. That's the whole problem. Verse 17, then to Adam, he, God, said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife instead of the voice of the Lord, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Whatever work Adam was doing in the garden before the fall, it was enjoyable. It wasn't laborious. He never broke a sweat doing it, but now man's going to have to work hard to get the ground to give him the same things which used to just grow on their own in the garden. Was man made to work? Absolutely, but not in the sense that we define work today. The work that man was created to do is enjoyable, stimulating, never tiring, always rewarding, and it would leave you refreshed rather than worn out. But even in this curse of, of man here, we can see God protecting Adam because man tends to get into trouble if he doesn't have work to do. You know, I've, I've known several older men in my life who became independently wealthy. And the ones who continued loving and serving the Lord were the ones who stayed busy with some sort of work. Inevitably, the ones who just began to kick back and worry about pursuing a, a life of leisure and relaxation, inevitably, they began falling into temptation, drifting from church, too much free time, and most of them ended up getting divorced after 40 years of marriage or something. Because nothing good happens when man doesn't have something to do. Man, I would just encourage you, just plan on being busy till the day you die. Even if you retire from your job, you better find something to do, because otherwise you're gonna find something not good to do. Trust me on that. Animals begin now to eat each other. And man begins to eat animals, so I guess it's not all bad. But in the very next chapter, Adam and Eve will have to deal with the first murder as their son Cain kills their other son Abel. And everything begins unraveling. And this wasn't just an earth-related issue. Creation itself, the whole universe had fallen. Through sin, death had entered into everything, our thinking our actions, our perspective, our DNA, everything. When God created the earth, he gave the spiritual title deed to Adam. He said, Adam, I'm giving the earth to you. You're in charge of it. Steward it. Manage it. But when Adam chose to listen to Satan instead of God, he transferred that title deed into the possession of Satan. So write this down and we'll talk about it. Mankind's rejection of God transferred ownership of the earth to Satan and caused the fall of the universe into sin. So when Adam sinned, ownership of the earth was transferred to Satan and it caused the whole universe to fall into sin. The apostle Paul, this is how we know this is true, referred to Satan as the God of this age. And even Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world three times in John's gospel. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, do you remember what the final temptation was? Matthew's gospel says this, it's on your outlines. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. 
And you can read that story in multiple gospel accounts. And in none of them does Jesus ever object to Satan's claim that he can offer him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus never says, you can't offer me that. You don't own them. And the reason is because Satan did own them. He held the title deed to the earth. And before any of us get mad at Adam and Eve, we have to deal with the fact that the Bible makes it clear, not only would we have done the same thing, but we have all done the same thing. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Isaiah was saying, all of us in our own way have rejected God and done our own thing instead. And while it might not sound like a big deal at first, the, the very first time we did that, we chose our way instead of God's. We rejected God and chose instead to be our own God. So write this down. We've all made the same decision Adam and Eve made. We've all made the same decision and we all would have made the same decision in their situation. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin came rushing into the world and with it came disease, sickness, pain, suffering, violence, and everything that we know deep down is, is wrong with the world. And here's the mind-blowing, brutal truth. God has only given us what we wanted. We wanted to rule ourselves and be the masters of our own universe. We wanted to set the rules for ourselves rather than following God. But we can't sustain the universe by the breath of our mouth. So the universe itself is dying. We can't change the heart of man, including our own, from evil to good. And so evil persists in the world. The prophet Jeremiah said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. He was saying, Can you just will yourself to change the color of your skin? Can you go from white to black or black to white? Can the leopard just will itself to no longer have spots? Jeremiah is saying it's as absurd as that to think that you can just will yourself to be good. He's like, you can't. Evil is coded into your DNA. We're corrupt on a genetic and spiritual level along with the whole universe around us. So where does pain and suffering come from ultimately? It comes from us. We're the ones who ushered brokenness into the universe. We're the ones who brought in disease. Incredibly, we're the ones who brought in natural disasters. We're the ones who perpetuate violence against each other and exploit one another. Never forget that what God gave us was perfection. He gave us perfection. And we broke it. We broke it. So write this down, the brokenness of the world is our fault. The brokenness of the world is our fault. I've talked about this before. We now have thousands of years of human civilization and history to prove that we can't get ourselves together. The world that we've built today indicts all of us, the whole human race. We have the medicine to cure most of the diseases that ravage the world. But have we eradicated them? No. Why? Money. Money. We've created incredible new technologies and, and when you think about it, have we really used them to make life better for mankind? No, not really. Use them to make money, to spy on each other, to control each other, to try and enslave one another. We didn't use the advent of, of modern travel, the movement of goods from one side of the earth to the other to alleviate poverty all over the world. Instead, we said, oh, this is good. Now we can exploit people on the other side of the planet. Isn't this fantastic? And this is the world that we've built. And it indicts us as being evil. There's a whole mountain of evidence to show that we can't make ourselves good. The issue isn't technology. The issue isn't resources. The issue is our hearts are evil. In Psalm 53, it says this about the way we're wired as people. It's on your outlines. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There's none who does good. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. 
There's none who does good. No, not one. By rejecting God, we broke ourselves, we broke our world, and we broke our universe. And we can see that anytime we turn on the news, check Facebook, see what's going on around us. And when we recognize that reality, the reality that the brokenness of our world is the natural result of our own sin, when we understand that, there's no room for shaking our fists at the heavens and questioning God. There's no room for wondering aloud if God is good or why a good God would let these things happen when we realize that it's been us all along that has wrecked everything. The only appropriate reaction is to raise our hands to the heavens and cry out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the good news is that he has been merciful to you and I, far above and beyond anything we have the right to expect or even ask for. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. This is the first time Eve's name is mentioned in the Bible. Her name means life or living. And it's very possible that her name is not a reference to her being the mother of all human beings, but rather her being the mother of all living because the savior of the world, the one who would restore true life, would be born through her line. And it's very possible that Adam understood the prophecy of the Proto-Evangelium, and that's what he was referencing in Eve's name. You might recall that up to this point, he simply called her woman. And Genesis 2.23 told us he called her that because she was taken out of man. But now, now his perspective has changed. Now Adam says, the most important thing about you is not that God created you out of me or created you to be my helper. The most important thing about you is that somehow in you lives our Savior. That's the most important thing about you. Husbands, wives, remember that. That is the most important thing about your spouse. Somehow, some way, if they're a believer, Jesus is living in them. And when you love them, you love Jesus. When you serve them, you serve Jesus. And when we remember that, it causes us to look at each other very, very differently. Verse 21, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Apparently God pointed out to them that their little leaf speedos were going to be insufficient for clothing. And the upgrade that they need is going to be animal skin, which means the first recorded death of life is going to take place because an animal is going to need to die in order for them to be provided with this clothing. Now, we don't know if God allowed Adam and Eve to witness the death of this animal, but I think it's safe to assume they would have been shocked and traumatized as the reality came rushing in that their sin had ushered death into the world, something they had no concept of because it had never happened. It had never happened before. And so the picture is Adam and Eve being literally clothed with death, the result of their sin. And they learned immediately that the guilt of their sins could only be covered in any way by the shedding of innocent blood. And if I were taking a guess at what type of animal died to provide these skins, I would guess a lamb. You see, our, our little leaves aren't going to work to cover our sins either. Our, our attempts to be a good person to do charitable works, to be kind to people, to go to church, to give to charity. Any of these sorts of activities are, are just half measures that don't actually deal with the covering that we need. Make a note of this. There has to be the shedding of innocent blood in order for sins to be covered. There has to be the shedding of innocent blood in order for sins to be covered. And that's exactly what Jesus the Lamb of God would do thousands of years later when the proto-evangelium was fulfilled and he himself 
took on our sins, wrapping them around himself as those animal skins were wrapped around Adam and Eve. And then he shed his own innocent blood for our sins, taking the punishment that was awaiting us in eternity for our sin of rejecting God. And the choice that we all have to make is whether we will own up to our sin and allow Jesus to take the punishment we deserve or if we will refuse to not own up to our sin and end up receiving the punishment ourselves for all eternity in hell. That's the choice. Jesus dies or we die. We decide whether Jesus died for us or whether we're going to die for ourselves. And I believe that we're going to see Adam and Eve in heaven because I believe they understood the gospel prophetically. And I believe they believed it. They placed their faith in it. That God would provide a way for them to have their sins forgiven through a Savior so that they could be with him again. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You see, now we learn that this other tree, the tree of life, which was also in the middle of the garden mentioned back in chapter 2, would incredibly, apparently, grant immortality to anyone who ate from it. And the Lord hadn't forbidden Adam and Eve from eating from that tree. He had said, go ahead, eat from the tree of life. Be immortal, live forever. But now the Lord, talking among the Trinity, says, we've got to step in and do something because if they eat from the tree of life now, they're going to live forever in their broken, sinful human bodies. And it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse. Verse 23, therefore the Lord sent him, Adam and Eve, out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. You know, our Lord is so gracious. Even after they sinned, he didn't make them walk out of the garden. It says he drove them out. He's so good, he's so good. And he placed cherubim, <laughs> he placed cherubim, that's a kind of super angel, and this is the plural for that, so at least two of these super angels, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And I just want you to notice, he doesn't kick them out of Eden as a punishment, he kicks them out because he says you can't be anywhere near the tree of life because I don't want you to live forever in the broken state that you are now in. And a regular angel would have been fine to keep any humans away, but these super angels would seem to imply that God was protecting the tree of life from Satan who wanted the fruit of it for some nefarious purpose. I think that's safe to assume without getting into more detail. Before this world is over and done with, the world that we're in today, the broken world we're in today, something amazing is gonna happen. We're gonna have the chance to live in the world that God originally created. See, Jesus is going to return to the earth physically, and we're going to return physically with him. And he's gonna rule and reign over the earth from the city of Jerusalem, sit on the throne of David. Revelation 20 tells us he's gonna reign for a thousand years, a millennium, and during that time, Satan's gonna be bound up, unable to affect anything or anyone. And when Jesus returns to the earth for that millennium, the earth itself, the whole universe, is going to return to an Eden-like state. And we're going to have the chance to experience the kind of earth that God gave to us in the beginning. In Romans 8.21, it says, the creation itself, so in other words, the whole universe also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So in other words, not only are we going to be given resurrected bodies when we leave this life, but the whole world is going to be remade. It's going to be restored. And when that happens, it's going to become crystal clear that God has always been good. Because when we see the world, when everyone sees the world the way God made it, when he handed it over to us, there's going to be nothing that we can point at and say, oh, you set us up to fail. How could you be good? We're going to see it and go, this is heaven on earth. This is incredible. We'll be able to compare the world we made that we've lived in to the world that God made. And there'll be no confusion about the fact that the best version of everything 
is the one where Jesus reigns. The prophet Isaiah described what will happen in that time, and he said this, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. There's really going to be a time when every hospital is going to close. Every wheelchair is going to become garbage. Every pair of prescription glasses is going to be unnecessary. That's really going to happen. And we're going to be there when the King of Kings, Jesus, returns to heal our broken world. I pray he comes today. It can't happen soon enough as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to wrap up with this. When a pastor says that, it means you're in the last 30 minutes of the message. I'm going to wrap up with this. When we read this chapter of the Bible... All that usually strikes us is the, the cost to man, you know, what we lost. But think of the cost to God. So, so not only did he lose the intimacy of his relationship with his children, having to now distance himself from them, but he would have to offer, choose to offer his only begotten son, Jesus, in order to restore that relationship with his children. And God knew all that before the first day of creation. That thought is staggering to me. God knew what creating us would cost him, and yet he still chose to create you and I. What did it cost God to create the universe? Six days? No. It cost him his son, Jesus. And he loves us. My goodness, he loves us. There's no mystery to why we love God. What's not to love? The mystery is why God loves us. And the only answer I can come up with is that God loves us because he's good. He just is. God is love. God is good. And this is what it looks like. Undeserved love and kindness. We read today how the Lord would come down and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And I love that. I just love the thought of God coming down to just be around his creation and his kids, and that's what he's doing there. He's just smiling and enjoying watching them be who he created them to be. But here's the thing that struck me this week. I was just sitting in my office and thinking about this, meditating on it, and had this thought, and it just, just moved me. Every time that, that God did that, every time he came down and walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day, laughed with them, he did it knowing full well what was coming in the future. He did it knowing that Adam and Eve were going to eat the fruit they shouldn't, disobey him, reject him, and ruin the earth that he had given them. He knew all that, and yet he didn't say, no, I'm not coming down to hang out with you. Why would I? <laughs> if you knew what I knew about what you're going to do real soon, you wouldn't want to hang out with you either. Why would I want to do that? I know the ultimate betrayal is coming. Hey, yeah, the thing you're about to do is going to cost me the life of my son, Jesus. So no, I don't want to hang out with you. God doesn't say or do or even think that. Because that's who he is. He, he loves his kids. He loves spending time with his kids. Even though there might be disasters to deal with, that doesn't stop him from enjoying every possible moment and everything he can when it comes to his kids because that's the character of our Heavenly Father. And I know that some of us have, have blown it so badly that, that we wonder whether God really loves us the same way as he used to. Or we wonder if he's, he's kind of done. Maybe he used to really enjoy hanging out with us, but it's not the same anymore. Or, or he only loves us as much as he has to now, you know, to fulfill the requirement of being God. And I also know that unfortunately for some of us, the biggest mistake we'll ever make is still in the future. And what I want you to know is that no matter how bad the failure in your past is, no matter how bad the failure in your future might be, it has no bearing 
not just on how much God loves you. It has no bearing on how much he enjoys you. How much he enjoys you. He knew what Adam and Eve were going to do. And he still said, I want every moment with you I can have. And I want to enjoy every moment with you that I can have. He loves spending time with you. And through Jesus, he dealt with your sins and mine, which means that because of what Jesus has done, he sees you and I through the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see the failure in your past. He doesn't see the failure in your future. It's all been dealt with already. He just sees you and enjoys watching you be who he made you to be. He just sees those moments. He just takes note of those moments. And he enjoys you just as he was able to enjoy Adam and Eve, just as Jesus was able to enjoy the friendship of his disciples, knowing full well that they were going to abandon him in his hour of greatest need. That blows me away too when I think of Jesus sitting down and laughing with them, enjoying their company at the Last Supper, knowing what's about to happen, knowing who's about to betray him, knowing who's about to abandon him. But he wouldn't trade it for the world because he loves them. He loves them. And he loves being with them. And he loves you. He loves being with you. Everything the Bible says about how much God loves you, everything the Bible says about how much God loves you, was spoken by God with full knowledge of every sin you would ever commit. Past, present, future. God doesn't do take backs. He doesn't say, can I get a refund on that promise to never forsake you? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know you were going to do that. Doesn't happen. He knew it all before he even made the promise. He loves you, but, but incredibly, God likes you and me. And he, he enjoys you. So enjoy him. Draw close to him. And, and if there's anything in your past or in your present that you think is hindering your relationship with God, just know that God is looking for you, saying, where are you? Where are you? What's going on? Come be restored in relationship with me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your kindness to us and the way that you have loved us through the life and death of your son, Jesus, is beyond anything we could ever ask for or expect or, or even imagine. Lord, as we look at the world around us, as we look at the brokenness around us and even the brokenness in, in our own lives, in our own families, in our own world, Lord, we recognize that none of it is because of you. And all of it is ultimately because of our sin and how we responded to your kindness to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for second chances. Thank you that our second chance with you will last forever. Thank you that you don't leave us in our mess. But you've promised to restore all things and then lead us into a future that's better than anything we could ever dream of. Thank you that that's just who you are. Your love, your kindness, your good, all the time, in every way. And we love you for it, God. And so we do ask for those areas of life where we're experiencing the brokenness of the world ushered in by our sin, God, we just ask that you would be merciful and gracious, that you would help us to never direct anger or blame towards you, the last person who deserves it but that we would be grieved by the effects of sin, that we would grow in our disdain for sin as we see its effects around us, God, and that we would desire more of you, more of your kingdom, more of your ways, more of your spirit, and uh, that our hope would be fully and completely in you, understanding that we cannot fix the deepest things wrong with us or the deepest things wrong with the world. We pray that you'd come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you, God. Just spend some time in, in stillness with the Lord. Ask him 
if there's anything in your life that, that, that's hindering your relationship with him, and if there's a failure in your past that, that deep down you believe is hindering your relationship with God that, that you think he can't move on from, would you just thank him that it was covered at the cross? Take communion, it's available in the back. Thank him that it was paid for on the cross with the shedding of the innocent blood of Jesus. But then ask him just to heal you, to heal that part of you that, that feels like it can't ever be the way it was with the Lord. Ask him to heal you, and he will. He'll do it today. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.